Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun. Day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one. Doctor, everything will be alright. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this one is another one of those that's going to go down as one of my favorite episodes. Most interesting, fascinating conversations I think we've ever had on here. Our guest this week is noted producer, audio engineer, Susan Rogers. Now Susan's career goes back to the late 70s, but in the early 80s, she moved to Minneapolis to work closely with Prince. And she was his right-hand audio man for those peak years from like Purple Rain until Sign of the Times. She worked very closely. This is all pre-Paisley Park. So that hyper-creative period in Prince's career is when he was working closely with Susan. In fact, you know, we've all heard about the vault, Prince's vault. What's in the vault? What could be in there? Susan is the one who created the vault and got it going. I just feel like even though, even if you think you know a lot about Prince, and I'm sure you do, you are going to receive, you're going to get some some deep color in this conversation. It's going to fill in some gaps. You're going to be able to visualize things that I feel like were only there, you know, ephemerally before. I just, her encyclopedia uh, like memory and knowledge of that period in her career, well, her entire period, but especially that period, is so interesting. I was just completely blown away this entire time. Now, we don't just talk about Prince, but that is probably the first two-thirds of this conversation. After she leaves Prince, she gets into more kind of helping indie rock. I mean, there's No Myth from Michael Penn. That's her. There's One Week from Bare Naked Ladies. That's her. She works with people like Edie Brickell and New Bohemians, Public Image Limited. She works closely with Paul Westerberg for a while. She talks about that in here. Uh, she also works closely with a this kind of strange avant-garde duo that I really like called Gegita that I'll tell you more about at the end. Anyway, Susan now works at the... She gave up music or working in the music industry about 20 years ago. So she teaches at the Berklee College of Music now. But um, just this conversation will blow your mind. It just fills in so many gaps, gives so much interesting color and visualization to what, what it must have been like being Prince, working with Prince, being around Prince, and how her mastery of what she was doing helped him be who he was at that time. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. All right? Uh, she called me from her home in around Boston. So for starters, um, now, I mean, I do, your career began back in the seventies, I believe in LA and something that, you know, this 
why, I mean, why are there not more women it behind the scenes there? Had you, have you ever been in a recording studio where there was a woman who was equal to you on the, in stature and responsibility? The only time I got the, um, the opportunity to, to experience something like that was in 2018. This was in New Zealand. So the Song Hubs is an organization in New Zealand, and they brought together, uh, it might have been maybe 20 of, the, uh, of New Zealand's top female songwriters, and they brought in five, including me, female producers last year songwriters so myself and wendy wang and uh, chelsea jade and ebony smith and uh the, the, the five of us um came to new zealand and we were in neil fenn's roundhouse studios and he had five rooms there so we each were able to take a room each producer was able to take a room and work with with these female songwriters so then at the end of the day you know we'd have our lunches together and we'd have our meals together right there in the studio and at the end of the day we'd sit around and we'd play what we had done for one another mm. that's the closest i've ever come and of course working with wendy and lisa uh they are they are brilliant arrangers and musicians True. although they were in a different role they were the, yeah. the artist and i was in the role of of engineer yeah why is that i spoke with paula cole um a couple of months ago and she was nominated for a grammy for producing her album and yeah. she's the only female to ever be you know nominated i only know of a couple ever why is that is it patriarchal is it just that they've never thought that they could do it are they not interested what do you think I think it's a combination of quite a, a lot of factors. If scientists were to model it, I think they're definitely, they'd uncover multiple factors. Uh, I, I think part of it is something as benign and simple as a lot of women just aren't interested in it. We see this at my department where I teach at Berkeley, music production and engineering, the male applicants outnumber the female applicants every time. Everyone is free to decide that they would yeah. like to be an MP and E major, but women are less interested in it. But there's another really important factor, and this is this kind of bugs me. When we watch movies and television, sometimes we'll see a male character who's got a wife and kids at home, and that male character is monomaniacally focused on his career and he's just not home very often but the the premise is oh geez that's kind of rough for the wife but oh what a good man he is what a good man working so hard to put bread on the table for his wife and his children and isn't she a lucky woman that she snagged this monomaniacally career focused guy but how often do we see a woman who is monomaniacally focused on her career? And when we do see that, she's usually uh, considered, ah, oh, the poor guy, the yeah. poor guy. Look, he yeah. got a woman who's, uh, who's just not there for him. I happened to catch a few minutes of Aaron Brockovich, the film the other night. And I was reminded of that, you know, it's, it's kind of a tisk tisk tisk. Yes. Uh, look at you that you're working so hard for your career and when you should be thinking of others. So women are not socially rewarded yeah. the same way that men are yeah. for having this, let's call it selfish, this selfish devotion to, to the arts. And, yeah. and that's what you have to be in order to be competitive in the music business. You've got to be monomaniacally focused on it. You have to the exclusion of other things. 
I could see that. That makes sense. It's a shame. I, it's not, I mean, now that there are so many more female movie directors, it seems like they're starting to slowly, but surely raise in the rise in the ranks in the creative arts and the creative, the business associated with the creative arts. I, this just feels like a final frontier that I can't think of any good reason why women aren't just as capable as men in producing music. You know, I don't, I don't know. When you look at when you look at us old timers who've been doing that this for a long time, you see that most of us are childless. Uh, that's Sylvia Massey and myself and Leanne Unger, Leslie Ann Jones. Um, we 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 did not veer off that career path in order to have children. Why should we have to? Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a biological factor there. Our bodies are going to be hosting another human being for at least nine months and men don't have that problem and then after we give birth we've got this organism that's physically dependent on you men don't have that problem so there's a biological factor that we'll never overcome that's just mother nature the social factors we can and are overcoming Mm -hmm. Uh, now with the new portable recording tools it's easier than ever for a woman to have her career at home and not have to leave baby behind when she goes to the studio. Yeah. Good point. Um, Okay. So my, as I mentioned earlier, my, my understanding is that the career begins in LA. The things that finally kind of make it all take off relate back to Prince. What were you doing in LA and why, what was so, how did he manage to turn to convince you to move to Minneapolis to work with him? Oh, it didn't take a lot of convincing. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why I got the gig. So I started my career by wanting to serve the music business. I am a non-musician. I don't write or play or sing, and I have zero interest in, in being a musician. What I am and have always been is a passionate record lover. Uh, and many, many of us who are just passionate about listening to records will go into fields like record production or we'll become an A&R person or music business manager. We go into those peripheral fields in order to serve the industry. Well, that's what I wanted to do. But having no business acumen whatsoever, I recognized that I did have I've got um, I'm a technical mind. I'm a technical yeah. thinker. So I began my career as an audio technician, self-taught and then taught by others who brought me up as a trainee. So after working for a company called Audio Industries Corporation, where my job was to repair consoles and tape machines in the greater Los Angeles area, I was hired away by Crosby, Stills and Nash, who had a one-room studio called Rudy Records. And I was there working for Crosby, Stills and Nash as their studio tech when I heard through the professional grapevine, Prince is looking for a technician. He was my favorite artist in the world. Really? So you knew who he was and everything? Oh, God, I had all his records. I had seen him on the Dirty Mind tour. I had seen him on the 1999 tour. I I had his posters from the Controversy album. I had his his poster where he's standing there with that Honor Telecaster guitar and the bikini briefs. That that was up in my (laughs) shop at at Rudy Records. And um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this because it's the truth of his life. But back then, the year was uh, 82, 83. David Crosby uh, was, was on drugs it's well known and David would come into my tech shop where I was working to to do drugs to to smoke freebase and he I'd be in there working and he'd be sitting on a stool and he'd be getting high and uh, he'd look up there at that Prince poster 
he'd go up to it and he'd just yank it down and he'd crumble it up. Several times I found it balled up and, and thrown under under the bench. And and one time I asked him, you know, what's up with that? <laughs> you know, what, <laughs> what, what what do you protest about him? Uh-huh. David mumbled something about it, something disparaging. And I said, you know, you remember that was you once. That was you. That was you when you started and you were young and you were a rock and roller with a guitar in your hands. I mean, what's yeah. not to like? That's right. So yeah, I, I heard through the grapevine that Prince needed a technician. He was just coming off the 1999 tour and he had already begun plans for the Purple Rain movie and the album. And he needed someone, as he told his management, get me someone from New York or L.A. I, I need someone who, um, you know, who's steeped in the industry and knows industry standards and practices and can can help me with my home studio. Yeah. So they, they put the word out through the professional grapevine in L.A. And as soon as I heard about it, I knew, oh, <laughs> if, if I could have written on a napkin what my dream job would be, that was it. So it worked out. Wow. Now, this is for listeners who don't know, this is pre-Paisley Park, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what what is the studio environment that you're working in? You mentioned a home studio. Is it attached to his house? Is it down the street? Is it in town? Where are you working specifically? Uh, we're on Kiowa Trail, a house on Kiowa Trail on uh, in Chanhassen, Minnesota, which is just a, a stone's throw down the street from where Paisley would eventually be. So it's a, um, a four-bedroom house. And downstairs, downstairs, and now I'm all of a sudden speaking in a Minnesota accent, you go downstairs. <laughs> And when you're downstairs on the landing there, uh, there's two bedrooms. The large bedroom is Prince's master bedroom. And then across the landing was Uh a smaller bedroom, which was the studio. That was it. And that particular room, small bedroom, was adjacent to a garage. So for a family, it might have been the baby's room. Well, it's, it's pretty small, uh, yeah. but he had a, a console, a multi-track tape machine, a stereo tape machine, the big Westlake monitors on the wall. It was pretty crammed in there. If you listen to Darling Nikki, uh-huh. that room. Really? That room. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating like to waste some time and I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind She took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes She had so many devices and Darling Nikki in 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 on the Purple Rain album, that uh-huh. room. Prince playing everything by himself. So he did quite a lot of work in that room. If you were to listen to, and I think you should, the the album that came out a couple of years ago, three years ago, called uh, 1983, A Piano and a Microphone. Yes. Uh-huh. It,
On, on the piano, which was right upstairs, kind of in the dining room, where the dining room meets the living room, right above his studio. You'd have to run the cables up the staircase, but uh, that that's him sitting at the piano with just a, a boom box wow. right above. So it was just a modest suburban yeah. home, split level, nice. Okay. Nothing, certainly nothing that could be called a mansion, like a, like a middle-class American family would live in. Sure, sure. And did you... Now, I think he's famously, famously, he works like all hours. He never sleeps. So were you on call? Did you live next door? Did you live? Did you stay at the house? How did he get you there as often as he needed you to be? Or were you eight to five? Was he doing what he wanted and you would come in eight to five, do your thing and go oh, home? Goodness. No, no, uh, He and I, um, well, but here's how I like to put it. If he was awake, he wanted to have a musical instrument in his hands. And I've heard that Jimi Hendrix was similar. So if he was awake, his hands, if he wasn't taking a business call on the phone, he, he wanted to be making music. And if he was making music, he wanted to be recording it. Mm-hmm. So basically, if he was up, I was up because he was he was up he was making music and and he and i were working together at the end of a session he'd go off to bed or maybe to make some phone calls or uh, to to finally spend time with a girlfriend who'd been sitting there patiently all evening he'd go off to tend to his social life i would wrap up the studio do do the final tidying up things you have to do i'd go home uh take a shower get maybe maybe three or four hours of sleep and right next to the right on the the bed stand there was the phone and the Uh, phone was my tether my umbilical cord back to him so the phone would ring i'd pick it up and it would either be prince or it would be someone who worked for him saying uh he's ready yeah or he'd say if if it was him i'd pick it up and he'd say susan (laughs) you know he had that monotone yep yep yeah boss you know I'm, i'm on my way and uh you throw on some clothes you you, you hope, although I, I rarely dared to do this, but sometimes you think, you know, I'm just going to try and swing through this drive through get a cup of coffee. You do the best you can, but I would just fly down the road, not yeah. that far, and get okay. to his place and we would work. He knew, he knew how devoted and dedicated I was. He knew uh-huh. there was nowhere I'd rather be. Yeah. And, um, and, and I prided myself on being able to keep up with this relentless pace. Yeah. He um, now you, I believe, are responsible for. He's also famously been cataloging, as you said, everything he records, everything he does, and the vault, as people say, is just jam packed with good stuff. You're the one who sort of created that vault, I believe, right? Yeah. What goes in? What What specifically when we when we hear the word vault, what should we be imagining? What did you do? You know, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you how it began, but it was years before there actually was a vault. In particular, it was four years before there was a vault. When there was a vault, it was so named because it was a vault. It was a. It was. It was 
designed and built as like a bank vault. It's a big room and I'm picturing it in my mind's eye. And I want to say, it's not that huge. I want to say maybe 18 feet by 15 feet or something like that, like a decent sized living room. And it's in the basement of Paisley Park Studios. And the door on this vault is a bank vault door, a big, thick steel door, layered steel door with one of those round, you know, those round kind of, Yes. It looks like it looks like, it's like, around, like something you'd steer a ship with, only smaller. <laughs> right. One of those round wheels in the front to open okay. this massive thing. And then there's a keypad like you'd see in a James Bond movie, and there's a code, and that's how you open uh-huh. the vault door. By the mid-90s, I'm told that it was so full of tapes you couldn't get the vault door closed. So tapes were spilling out into the anteroom and, and upstairs. But and when I when I started with him, there was no vault and um the idea for the vault originated when he kept asking me to, he'd ask me for tapes. You know, we'd be working and it'd be two o'clock in the morning and he'd say, where's, where's Bambi or something like that. And uh-huh. I just had to know where everything was and it had to be in one place. Cause he was my boss and he was asking me for things. Yeah. So I just began the routine process of gathering up his tapes at home in Minneapolis from local recording studios where he might've worked before I joined him from Los Angeles, from Sunset Sound, where he liked to work in L.A., uh, from uh, from uh, studios where he worked in L.A. before Sunset Sound, calling them, getting giving them our FedEx number, getting them to pack up these tapes, send them home to Minneapolis. Now, the question is what to do with them. So his office staff uh, had, this is 1983, but they had data, a database computer, and they could enter all that information about these tapes. And then we had to store them. Properly, because Minnesota weather goes yeah. from, you know, outer space cold to just hell, hellish hot over the span of 12 months. So uh, to protect them from the elements, we had to uh, find a storage facility nearby in Eden Prairie. And here comes my Minnesota accent again, because I'm picturing it, uh, <laughs> a record storage facility that had these gray plastic bins. And you'd take these bins and you'd put your tapes in it and you'd label the bin and you'd throw a lock on there and they'd file it away. They were accessible 24-7, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So I could call this a phone number at two o'clock in the morning and say, I need bin number O slash 138. And they'd pull it for me. I'd, I'd drive there, go there. The, the guard would be waiting. Let me in. I'd get the tapes. And, and it worked. It worked. Uh, years, years back, uh, before Paisley Park, a reporter from Rolling Stone magazine, right around the time of Around the World in a Day, a Rolling Stone reporter came out to do a big comprehensive article on Prince. And one of the things we did is we took that reporter over to this storage facility just to show him. Yeah. It was just That's down the from our rehearsal space. Yeah. Did Prince call back or or want those t- the the tapes on a regular basis? I don't know if he's recording everything and re- and or he's performing and recording it and is just sitting there, or was it a pretty regular occurrence for him to say, "I need Bambi. Can you go fetch it for me?" How often did he refer back to those ideas? It wasn't that often, and mostly it would happen when uh, we were either tidying up an album, I'll explain more about that in a moment, or more likely when he was working with one of his protégés. If he needed a song for Jill Jones or for the time, if he needed a song for Sheila, he'd remember something that he had written and just kind of sketched up 
uh, a few years before, and he might want to hear that again to see if he can change the lyrics and make it a song for Sheila or someone else. So it would happen mostly when he was working with his side projects. But memorably, um, it happened when we were doing the Sign of the Times album. So Sign of the Times was a double album. And... um, you know, back in those days, compared to a CD, it still wasn't a lot of music because you'd get 17 minutes per side. So a uh, double album was kind of a big deal. And he pulled two things out of the vault that, that were really kind of wonderful. One was Slow Love, which ah. was an old thing he had written with a high school friend, Carol, whose last name I don't remember. He, uh, he pulled up Slow Love and, and we just, we didn't do anything to it other than mix it. We just mixed it right there. Uh, it was an old song, but yeah, he wanted, he needed a ballad on the album. Didn't feel like writing one. Thought, oh, I remember Slow Love. Let's pull that up and listen to it. But the other one that was even more exciting was I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. The original track, the, the the rhythm section, he kept, but he just redid the whole upper structure of it, mm-hmm. layers with new guitars and that amazing guitar solo, totally new vocal. Yeah. I really loved how that turned out. I love that. Well, I mean, who doesn't love everything Prince did, especially in the 80s, but Sign of the Times is a masterwork, mm-hmm. uh, the whole thing, if you ask me. I have more questions relating to specific songs and things like that, but I want to, I am curious with a few more Whenever you worked with him, I've heard as far as Paisley Park goes, he was always dressed. 
He never, he would get two hours, like you, whoever, whatever the engineer is that's working at Paisley Park gets those precious three hours to themselves. And in those three hours, Prince has slept, changed his clothes, put on makeup, you know, whatever it is, he did his hair. Was that, was he like that with you? Or did you ever show up and he was just in like sweats and a t-shirt? I never saw him in a, in a t-shirt. I saw him in jeans once when I first went to work for him. I saw him wearing, wearing jeans and those high heel boots early in my time with Prince. Um, his manager, Steve Farnoli, was was with us because we're getting ready to make this big, expensive movie. And yeah. we were at rehearsal and the band took a break. And uh, Prince was so eager, you know, let's get let's get back to rehearsal. And he, he said to Steve, where's the band? And Steve said, oh, they're just changing into their costumes. They'll be right there. And, and I was there with my console and I, I kind of flinched internally because I know I thought to myself, here it comes. And sure enough, <laughs> Prince said to him, those are not costumes, they're clothes. So the things you saw him wear, whether it was out in public or on stage or in a movie, uh-huh. that's what he wore. Those were his clothes. And he was always impeccably dressed and he looked great. He smelled great. I saw him in pajamas plenty of times and those nice silk pajamas. I was going to say, I'm sure they're flowing silk pajamas, only nice, the best, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, when, when we were working at home. But... Um, he prided himself on that and he loved clothes and he had, he had enough money and to, to, to dress well. And he prided himself on that. In fact, I remember one time we were working out in Los Angeles at sunset sound and Peggy McCreary was a staff engineer at sunset. So when we'd go out to LA, Peggy and I got to work together and we had engineer clothes. We had sweatshirts and jeans, (laughs) engineer clothes. And he looked at us in disgust one day and he says, why don't you, why don't you dress better? Why don't you get yourself some decent clothes? And he said, you work for me, get some decent clothes. And Peggy and I just looked at each other like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give up on my two hours of sleep. And I think I'll go to Macy's instead. What, what do you think our lives are like? So did you, did you start dressing differently or better or anything? I tried and I failed really badly. Uh, engineers aren't necessarily known for their fashion. And right. I, I, I went down to Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles and I said to the, I don't know if she believed me or not, but I said to the woman who was helping me, I work for Prince. I need to look cool. I have no taste in clothes. Can you pick some stuff out for me? And she did. And Jesus, it was awful. It was, it was bad. I still cringe when I think of it. I wore it for a week and then I'm like, oh, to hell with this. This doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. He did. He did say to me one time when we were home in Minneapolis, he said it again. And it was, it was just me at home with him in Minneapolis. And he said, I've got a box in my closet. And he pointed, you know, across the hallway there to his master bedroom. I've got a box in my closet of old clothes. Go just find something. (laughs) So when we were finished working, I went into the bedroom and I went to that box and I kind of rummaged around. Yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, Purple lame trench coats and little animal print silk tops. Yeah, and that's not going to happen. I, I wish, oh, uh, poor me, I, I wish that I had, you know, just taken some of those things and brought them sure. home, but I wasn't inclined to be that way. He had sent yeah. me on a mission, find something to wear. The mission failed, so I just, right. just let it lie. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Um, oh. Okay, I have a, I don't, 
think this is too personal a question, but you tell me. Um, if and when he ever got mad at you for something, what would that have been? Oh, yeah, no, that's a fine question. It's a good question. Um, we want to make sure that we don't canonize Prince. He was certainly no saint. Okay. So he, bless his heart, when he would get mad, more often than not, it wasn't due to a mistake. If he was in a good mood and you made a mistake, he'd tease you about it. He'd tease you, you made a mistake, and off you'd go. If he was in a bad mood, it was because the world had disappointed him in some way. Maybe it was uh, a, a, he disagreed with his management or with his label or with the, the, the world is pushing back against him in a way that made him unhappy. And bear in mind, when I knew him, when I joined him, he had just turned 26 years old. This is a young man. And it's a young man who has employees and who is now a millionaire and no role model. No one in his, in his life has taught him how to do this. So the pressures must have been enormous. Yeah. So to answer your question, when he'd be just in a bad mood, his tendency was to get really quiet really, really quiet. And it wouldn't be passive aggressive. It would just be, he just dropped that veil and yeah. he'd barely speak to you. And he just, he just wouldn't talk. He, he'd be brusque and okay. he'd be um, dismissive and, and uh -huh. curt. And you knew there wasn't anything you had done. Uh -huh. It's just what's going on in his head today and just leave him alone and he'll be out of it in a little while. And usually he'd emerge out of it after the record we were working on, it kind of turned a corner. And by turning a corner, I mean, you got your rhythm section, you got your melody, you got your harmony, you've got your lyrics. And now the fun stage begins, which is the embellishment, the embellishment uh -huh. that turns a song into a record. This is the fun part. It's also difficult. But when the song was turning the corner and you knew what it was, now he can exhale. Okay. And then he'd start talking. And sometimes he'd say, you know, Susan, people are really, and he'd give me some facts about the world and human nature, and, and I'd kind of know what was on his mind a little bit. Okay. Now, when, when I had done something wrong, uh, it was the teasing. that The teasing was worse. Uh, the silence was bad, but the teasing was schoolyard teasing. You know, I've got three younger brothers, so I know all about boys. Oh, three younger brothers, close in age. I know how they fight, and I know how they tease, and I know how they they uh, they poke at each other. It's different yeah. from the way women do it, and it was it's kind of those schoolyard taunts. Most of the time, I could handle it, but I was working on very little sleep. So every once in a while, he'd cross a line. Okay. There were a couple of times when I got mad at him, and uh, I lived to tell the tale. Yeah, I was going to say, that's ballsy. Um, the reason I ask that is because I'm imagining an environment where if you can't retrieve the Bambi tape quick enough, or some drum machine isn't plugged in or working correctly, or he has an idea and you can't get to the studio fast enough, does he become furious in a rage or is oh, he understanding goodness. about that kind of stuff? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Goodness, no. That wasn't oh, good. Him. That good, wasn't good, good. Him at all. He'd be uh, <laughs> he'd be peeved. Okay. But it would be the it would be the kind of, I mean, just as he was capable of being a schoolyard boy, he was a dad. Okay. It'd be a peeved dad. 
Got it. The, the pick up those toys. Damn it, yeah. kids. How many times have I told you not to leave your stuff lying around? It was peeved dad. Right. No, we would have been we wouldn't have lasted as long with him uh-huh. as we did. And we wouldn't have this love for him today yeah. if he had just been a tyrant. No, he was nothing like that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one example when he barked at me. <laughs> We're working at his home studio and uh, I, I was trying to do 10 things at once. I'm trying to serve him and get something going and I'm trying to fix something and I need to tune his bass because he told me never to hand him an instrument that wasn't in tune. And I'm trying to tune the bass and I'm trying to do, and thread the tape. And, then, and he just said to me, Susan, when are you going to get some help? <laughs> get help. I keep telling you, get some help. And I just looked at him silently and he says, what am I broke? Hire some help. That 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 was his his way of uh, of of of. That's being great. Angry. That's great. Yeah, there's, there's nothing you couldn't handle. Okay. It, it was mad dad kind of. Yeah. Thing. Okay. I'm guessing when things got to digital recording, he would just you just record all day. You just it would just be recording, and then he would go back and you know instead of it being the Bambi tape, it would be October. 30th 2002 and everything recording that day and then that's where he's plucking ideas from i don't know but um okay let me see here when he would come to the studio is i'm i'm imagining just the maybe the two of you in this little room that's jam-packed with gear and everything when he comes to the studio does he noodle around on everything looking for inspiration till he finds a song or does he usually have like let's go crazy in mind, and he's just the it's the embellishments that you were talking about that he's trying to figure out. Well, at the time, I knew only a little bit of what the uh, average recording musician does in the studio. So I went from audio technician to recording engineer with Prince. Uh-huh. So I only knew Prince's methodology for all intents and purposes. And with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I had assisted on some sessions, but I had never ever seen anything like this. And I assumed there were other people who did the same, who worked as rapidly as he did. I have, and I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question, but I want to preface it by saying, since studying neuroscience, and particularly the neurobiology of creativity, I have now come to recognize that Prince is someone that scientists would refer to as a hyper-creative. So with a hyper-creative, there's actually a well, you can call it impairments, but it ends up being an asset. And I'm pointing to my right temporal lobe over here. There are a couple of uh, nuclei in the on the right-hand side of the brain that are implicated in the creative process. And when those are faulty, when they're faulty, creative ideas will just keep coming and they won't stop. They won't stop. I've only known two people. Prince was one. And, and I've known one other uh, hyper-creative and, and worked very closely. That particular other hyper-creative is Tommy Jordan, who's my dearest friend now. So I, I've known Tommy for 30 years. Wow. And, and, and I observed the same thing with Tommy. The ideas will not stop. Yeah. So that was the case with Prince. So we would start when we were when we were going to start a session, it would be one of two ways. Usually if he had written a song in advance, he would have written it on piano for the most part. And if he wrote it on piano, he would have lyrics. So he'd come into the studio with lyrics and he's got an idea. He knows the melody. He knows the harmony. He knows the chord changes. And now all he has to do is get the rhythm track going as fast as possible so he can lay down this top line. Often, if he wrote something on piano, um, 
it would start with acoustic drums. The most remarkable thing you'd ever want to see is um, he'd have the lyrics and we'd tape, we'd tape the lyrics to a, a boom stand and set those lyrics on the boom stand in front of the drum kit. And then wearing no headphones, listening to no click, nothing, just he's on his drum kit. And by now I should say to picture the scene, uh, this is a little bit later, we are in a new home mm-hmm. again in Chadhassan, but with a bigger, more proper home okay. studio downstairs. And uh, there's a, an ISO booth there. So you'd be in the ISO booth and there's the drum kit. There's the lyrics. And he's playing the song top to bottom with the fills and the breaks and everything, listening to nothing wow. but the song in his head, playing it in time. Just, I mean, just amazing. Yeah. And then coming into the control room, picking up the bass, laying the bass part, uh, taking a keyboard, putting the keyboard part down and, and stacking it and just the embellishments is when he had a chance to recreate what this song is going to be. The other way he would do things though, is not come in with a song. He'd just come in with a funk groove or a dance groove. And that's when we'd start with the drum machine. He'd just program the drum machine. He'd have an idea for chord changes. He'd probably have a lyrical theme in his head, I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. but we'd do a whole track, kind of a pop or a dance thing. He'd take a cassette of it, go out into the car. He loved writing lyrics in the car, loved it. Put that cassette in the car, sit there with his notebook, write out his lyrics, come back uh, in an hour, half an hour in some cases, um, come come up with his lyrics. He'd come into the control room, vocal mic would be ready to go, and we just keep going. So it was usually just one song at a time. And unlike the way most artists do it, it's tip to tail. We, uh-huh. from From the downbeat... To the final mix all in one very very long session amazing were the revolution around i mean i know you know did they how much were they contributing on these songs as well oh i'm glad you asked so at home when we weren't on tour the band was there whether home okay. well at home in minneapolis the band was there and we also had in addition to his home studio we just had a warehouse an industrial warehouse. We had we went through three of them in the four years that I was with him because the lease would run out. But mm-hmm. One was a former tire factory, I think, and you know, just industrial warehouses. Anyway, that's where we'd rehearse. And the, the riser would be set up, you know, just like on stage, and there'd be side fills, and the band's gear would be uh-huh. set up for a live show. Now, the microphones that mic'd up the band's gear would feed a splitter snake, which would then go to two consoles at the recording space. One is just a monitor mix console for the side fills and the monitors. And the other was my recording console. And I had a tape machine adjacent to that. And I had the big monitors and I had a rack of outboard gear. So uh, he loved rehearsal. Uh, we all did. And typically rehearsal would start at 10 o'clock in the morning. It might go to six or seven o'clock at night. And during rehearsal, if we weren't rehearsing for a tour if it wasn't tour rehearsal it was just playing with the band it's just working out parts and recording songs quite a lot of around the world in a day was done with the whole band at a warehouse um okay recorded right there no acoustic isolation nothing fancy lots of dynamic microphones Okay. The band on stage working out their arrangements. Of course, Lisa and Matt Fink, I mean, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. Yeah. And so yeah. they're going to come up with their own arrangements, their own parts. Okay. Under Prince's direction as a band leader, but he trusted his musicians enough to come up with parts. And Wendy and her knowledge of chords, he, 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 he good musicians like that. You just let them go. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Because when you were you're talking about the drumming, and I'm thinking there's really nothing that Prince can't do himself. So I'm imagining if he, it's not like he's calling Bobby Z saying, I desperately need you to come over here and do this drum part that only you can do because there's probably nothing any of those people, no offense to them can do that. Prince can't do, exactly. you know, it by himself in, in to realize the song in his head, you know? True. Yes. And it was the same with the engineering as well. Although there was only so much he could do. He could do the, the, the later stage engineering and, EQing, of course, yeah, it's yeah. easy. Turning up the the reverb knobs, of course. Uh, busing and signal routing. No, he didn't uh-huh. do that. And keeping an eye on the stereo bus patching. He never touched the patch bay. Razor blade editing. He needed an engineer to do all the the technical routing for him. And of course, I was there setting up setting up presets uh-huh. and dialing in compressors and and watching them when, when things were overly squashed. I'm sitting there and reach over and and I, I adjust the outboard gear. So he worked in tandem with an engineer, but you're right. I mean, okay. if, if signal routing was done for him, yeah. if it was sent to the tape machine and returning from the tape machine into the monitors, uh, he can he do quite a lot of it. Okay. What did you do when he would be on tour? You know, Purple Rain takes off, obviously, and he's gone for for a year. Are you? Do you have a year off? Or are no, you with him? No, I'm, I'm with him. You uh, are. I was his full time employee, and I, I was on tour. I was on the movie sets. I was on when we made videos. I was with him as long as he was working, and current needed to keep flowing in those wires from his uh, musical instruments to whatever destination needed to be there. Okay. I was there. Okay. So on movie sets, I would uh, supply the um, the incidental music or the tapes for playback. Of course, there'd be a professional there with a Nagra who would actually handle the playback on set. But I was there. I was there to help with with setting up the um, the live music scenes, of course, uh, yeah. on, on on the on movies on uh, on Purple Rain in particular. Uh, I was on tour with him, and I would um, I had a number of different roles depending on where we were. I, uh, as a technician, had wired up Bobby Z's drum rig that involved two conjoined LM1 drum machines, Mm. because so much of what we did was was based on a drum machine loop. Uh But we needed two of them because you need a backup if the first one fails on tour. So so I had wired all that up. And I also wired up the piezo pickups that went from Bobby's acoustic drums, like his snare and his toms, to to trigger to trigger samples wow. on tour, so I was responsible for the, uh, okay. the design and the building of the electrical portion of Bobby Z's system. My position on stage would be stage left. If anything went out, if one of those piezo pickups, which happened one night, fall, just uh-huh. here to fall off the uh-huh. inside of the snare drum and start bouncing around. <laughs> That was one instance where Prince got really mad. <laughs> he was, it was the end of the set and he was, you know, he was dancing or something. And that stupid piezo pickup fell off the, the top shell, the top head of the snare. And it's bouncing around inside the shell. <laughs> and he said, how am I supposed to dance to that? <laughs> Don't ever let that happen again. And his favorite threat was, Don't ever let that happen again or heads will roll. <laughs> Yeah, that only happened once. So, yeah, that, that would be stage left. But in the major cities like New York or L.A., 
at the Superdome in New Orleans, we'd have a mobile recording truck. We had a mobile recording truck also in uh, in uh, Rotterdam, where we where we recorded the, we recorded the concert for a concert film for Sign of the Times. So yeah. often I was recording the live the live performance in the truck in the big cities. Okay, okay, boy, there was just no time off then. You were okay. never. Never, you never there had was time no, yourself. no birthdays. We worked Christmas. We worked Christmases. We worked. We worked every holiday, Thanksgiving, and all that. I have to say, I mean, it was only four years, or just a little over four years. It's not. That's not sustainable. You can only do that for so long. But wow, uh, yeah. uh, what a wonderful time! Yeah, um, I want to ask you about a couple of songs in particular. My very favorite Prince song is "Mountains." And uh, I wondered if you had any story about the creation of mountains. Yes. So it was uh, November and we had been in the south of France doing the Under the Cherry Moon movie. And uh, Wendy and Lisa were there. And Prince sent Wendy, Lisa and me to London, to AdVision Studios in London for a week. He got us a flat in London for, for a week. He got us a car and a driver, a really nice Rolls Royce. He told the girls to go shopping at Harrods and get themselves some clothes to wear in the videos. So he's just wrapping up this movie. And he, he wanted us to go in the studio and he says, just record something, write something, record it. Lisa, the, the stunning, stunning Lisa uh, did the, the piece we recorded with her was the piano piece that became Power Fantastic. Oh 
So we didn't add any lyrics to it. Power Fantastic, for those who don't know, was on a, a Prince compilation album. It's one of the most beautiful pieces he's ever done. Um, Power Fantastic, that was Lisa. When we brought that home, he added lyrics to it and, and, and we performed it. Mountains started with Wendy. Uh, Wendy did the drum machine and went the, those are Wendy's chord changes. And we did an instrumental version of mountains. Uh, again, they didn't write lyrics. We didn't have the time, but we spent our week in the studio doing mountains and what became power fantastic, brought the tapes home to Prince. He loved them both. And then we, we rehearsed mountains with the whole band at, at home and, uh -huh. and recorded it. And, yeah. Oh, that's my favorite Prince song. And I think mm -hmm. probably what helps is that it, you don't, hear it out in the wild as much as some of the others, you know? Hmm. And um, so you never get tired of it. I just love it. I should ask about Kiss too, while we're on that album, hmm. which is probably my sentimental favorite Prince album while we're at it. Kiss, kind of like um, when Dubs Cry, the magic of it is in its minimalism. And I'm wondering if the recording process on a song like Kiss, um, are you finding your, is this another thing where Kiss, where Prince has it all in his head and he knows what he wants it to sound like? Or are you stripping away, let's try this embellishment, it's better without it. Let's try this one, it's better without it. And then just leaving it be. How does a song like that find itself? Well, this song was exceptional uh, because Prince didn't make most of the production decisions on it. Uh, that was that was David Rivkin, David Z. So what happened was we were at Sunset Sound and in Prince's favorite studio, the big room, Studio Three, and. There are three studios, one, two, and three, that are, are all adjacent to a central courtyard with a basketball uh, hoop. And that's where Dave Chappelle famously had that skit about playing basketball with Prince. Yeah, that's what you do with Prince. You go out there and shoot hoops. Well, that's, I was editing or something like that. Anyway, uh -huh. so we're, Prince and I were working in Studio 3. And I don't remember what we were working on. But over in Studio 2 was, was Mark Brown. And with David Z, the producer David Z, and the band Maserati. So Mark Brown was uh, Prince's bass player, and Maserati was his protege band that he brought into the fold and that Prince signed to Paisley Park Records. So they had been making their album and they needed a song. So Mark came into our control room and he says, We need a song. We're all out of songs. We need a song. <laughs> and Prince. <laughs> 
writing a song is like rolling off a log to him. So we stopped what we were doing and he did something very uncharacteristic. He picked up his acoustic guitar, which he rarely did. It was a, an ovation, kind of a plastic thing. It, wow. it, it wasn't much as acoustic guitars go, but he picked that up. Uh, we recorded that and he, he knocked, he knocked out Kiss. The, 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 we did a guide vocal, did a basic drum machine. Here's, here's your rhythm guitar. Here's your drums. Uh, here's, here's the vocal. Here's how it goes. All right, take it and finish it. Sent it over to the next room, over to Studio Two. They work, 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 work on it. And uh, must have been later that night. I think it probably was. They came back over. David and Mark came back over into our control room. And they said, you know, they had the cassettes. And they said, check it out. And he listened to it and he heard those backing vocals and he heard what David Rivkin had done. And what David had done, he's taken those key, a keyboard pad and triggered it with the hi-hat. So you get that. It's just the hi-hat going through a noise gate and opening only when the hi-hat plays. So David is responsible for that. And Prince, I remember him just laughing with delight and saying, I'm taking that back. I'm <laughs> taking that back. And he did. He took yeah. it back. And, and then, and then we finished it. I don't ever remember if there was ever bass on it. Prince was wise enough to recognize it's a, it's a rhythm driven song and yeah. all the rhythm you need is in that keyboard part that who needs bass because yeah. bass can do harmony, but the harmony is in your backing vocals. So your yeah. elements are there just let it be. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's interesting that I may add that Prince's two biggest singles commercially were songs he either gave away or initially uh, gave away. And one is Nothing Compares to You, he yes. gave to the family. And the other is Kiss, who he initially gave to Maserati. Yeah. Speaking of the family, when I look over the other things you've worked on, Andre Simone, Sheila E., are you, um, I didn't see the time. Did you do anything with the time or were they kind of oh, yes. self-sufficient? Oh, you did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, um, I don't have a social media presence and I'm, I'm, I don't have a website and I'm not good at all at looking up what my credits are. So there might be some wrong credits there, but okay. oh, yeah. Ice cream castles. I did. I did okay. quite a lot. Of. I thought you might've. So how, like for instance, Love Bazaar. It sounds, no offense to Sheila, who's a fantastic artist on her own, it sounds like a Prince song, and it is. It sounds like something he would write and produce and do himself. How, when when it's a song like that, that he's giving to another artist, 
is he fully letting go like he might have with kiss or um is he masterminding everything and just basically swapping out his own vocals for sheila's yeah it's kind of that sheila the time uh the family these are prince alter egos exactly they're they're alter musical egos so when he writes for sheila he he understands what kind of musician she is. He understands her roots. He understands her band and their strengths and weaknesses. So he's going to write differently than if he writes for, for the family, because the family is going to have a different drummer is going to have a different, is going to have the saxophone, different sax player. And so he's expressing his alter egos musically when he writes songs like love bizarre or the things that he writes for the time seven 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 ninety three eleven that's the side of prince but he doesn't want his audience to to recognize that as prince that when 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 an artist has a public persona you pick and choose which aspects of your personal self and your artistic self you want the public to see and there were sides of prince that he did not want the public to see and that's expressed by the time and uh, maybe expressed with some other artists so these are these other artists are serving as alter egos he's for the most part doing everything playing all the instruments and then uh putting on a guide vocal which the artist will then replicate and then letting that artist showcase on their main instrument you know with Sheila it's uh, going to be percussion or drums and and with with the the family, it's going to be Eric on saxophone, that kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Um, and you were gone by Love Sexy, correct? Mm -hmm. You didn't work on Love Sexy? No. Okay. I, I know I said we'd get to other things, and we will, but there's just so much interesting print stuff here. I um, We have some Patreon supporters, and when I tell them who we're interviewing, they throw in some questions that they want. And there are a few here, if you don't mind me asking. Um, one in particular is from our friend Jeff Harris, who has a had a career in the music industry as well. He wanted to know specifically about the recording of Tambourine off of Around the World in a Day. Oh my God, here you are. Prettiest thing in life I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Close my eyes, what's it like? What's it like inside your tambourine? Oh my God, there I go. Falling in love with a face in a magazine uh -oh. All alone by myself Me and I play my tambourine Trouble in He was saying that he, if he understands correctly, it was recorded Flying Cloud Warehouse. Maybe that's the warehouse you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Sunset Sound. And then also uh, some parts were at, on a mobile um, mm -hmm. outside of the Kiowa Trail home. Do you remember anything about the recording of Tambourine? 
Oh, I wish I remembered it specifically. That drum performance is crazy great. The, the, yeah. the drum basic track done at Sunset Sound. We were on tour. We were on the Purple Rain tour. So we had the drums. I remember the, the, the thing I remember the most about tambourine is Christmas Eve, uh, finishing it up and mixing it in a mobile truck parked in Prince's driveway on Kiowa Trail, the Chanhassen house. So what happened was um, we're on tour. And while we're on tour, he's using opportunities like sound check in order to get more recording done. Sound check in cities where we have a mobile truck. We happened to have a mobile truck when we did our shows in St. Paul, at the, at the St. Paul Civic Arena in, uh, in, in, in St. Paul, yeah. Minnesota. So it was Christmas Eve and it would have been bad to do a show at eight o'clock at night on Christmas Eve. So we did a matinee show. A matinee show started at 3.30 or something like that. So we were done early. And when you're done early with Prince, well, the night is young. So he's just finished a show, you know, playing for 20,000 people. And now it's, and it's Christmas Eve and now it's time to get to work. Wow. So uh, the, the mobile truck was then driven from St. Paul over to his driveway, to his home, the home I started talking about where he did Darling Nikki, that modest suburban home. And this mobile truck was parked in the driveway and it was snowing and snow was falling. And he and I stayed up all night, Christmas Eve into Christmas Day. We stayed up all night finishing the ladder and um, we finished uh, tambourine and, 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 and just, just mixing them right there in the truck and printing them. And, and in the morning, I remember someone in the house, it was a girlfriend and I'm afraid I don't remember who it was, but someone in the house made us eggs in the morning and that was a lovely little Christmas. He had bought uh, expensive gifts for his band members and they were uh, calling with their thanks. And wow. it, was, it, was, it was really a, a lovely, lovely memory. That's amazing. My understanding is that the Around the World in a Day album was conceived almost as a, I don't know, some kind of a response to the, to the bigness of Purple Rain. Prince, it's my understanding that Prince was like, okay, yes, I know I just got huge with this. I've got to do something and I don't want it to be as huge or I don't want to th have to think about it as much. Let's just get this thing out and move on. Is that? Do you know if that was sort of the thinking behind that album? I can't say that I know it for sure. Uh, others close to him may have had a, a, a better idea about that. Susanna was very close. Alan Leeds was close at that time. And if they've spoken about that publicly, I wouldn't distrust them. From my perspective, it seems like what's most likely is uh, Prince was really smart, really high native intelligence. And he was smart enough to recognize that everything is cyclical, whether it's sports performance or it's career performance in the arts. After you've had a huge mega, mega hit, the odds are strongly in favor of your next record not being a mega hit. Go with it. Yeah. Go. And what he needed to do was to figure out if I am going to have a second mega hit or masterpiece, I need to start from the bottom and build up to it. So prior to Purple Rain and including Purple Rain, his artistic work had been very much one man's expression of what it's like to be him, his worldview and what he thinks about this, that, and the other thing. And there's this purple theme that starts in controversy and goes through 1999 and then comes up through purple rain. So he's got a color scheme and he's got, he's got, this is who I am. I'm proving yeah. myself as an artist. Well, around the world in a day allowed him to not worry so much about me 
and worry about us. Mm. So now there's an us. Now there's people who like him. There's 25 million people who bought his record. So uh, he abandons the purple himself theme and he goes with a color scheme that is basically the rainbow if you look at the artwork on the cover it's all the different colors uh, purple is not special in the rainbow of colors and he's uh, creating an album that talks about a world where people can be where this us can be that's paisley park and he's talking about going around the world in a day and he's talking about pop life and uh, yeah it represented a departure for him course like any artist he hoped it would be hugely successful but as i recall he did not choose a single off that album he, he and and by the way prince was probably the least single oriented artist of anyone i've ever worked with really? he simply couldn't care less about singles he couldn't care less he, he i never heard him talk about well this is going to be the single he, he really didn't care it, albums that's what we huh. made we made albums and he wow. considered his his art that he was contributing to the world to be his albums if you want to pick a song and play it on the radio knock yourself out um that's that's at odds with how most artists are. even raspberry beret because that is such the obvious standout on that album it's there's it's the only one kind of of its kind and it's the song that sound that makes the most sense as a follow-up single which it was to anything you would have heard on purple rain in my mind anyway mm -hmm. um after that pop life and some of the other songs on that album get a little they're different it's just a different vibe happening there so he was that was not clinical on his case he in, in his case he was not thinking raspberry beret is the thing that's going to draw people to this album I don't think he knew. Remember uh, what he said earlier about giving away Kiss and giving yeah, away uh, Nothing Compares to You. I don't think he had a good idea of what his strengths were in terms of the average consumer. Uh, with my classes, with my production classes at Berkeley, I talk about three audiences, the general public, other musicians, and the critics and scholars. And quite often, um, an artist will be oblivious as to the filter that these three audiences employ. I don't think he knew how the general public listens to music. Now that's where he could have used a producer, but he didn't have one. So he he, he just, <laughs> just threw everything at the wall to see what yeah. would stick. Yeah, okay. Um, one of our other supporters, Andy Shaw, he lives in Minneapolis. So he has some questions for you about that. One thing I thought, and I was curious about this too. Um, did he ever make you pancakes? Because apparently he makes famous pancakes. No, he never made me pancakes, <laughs> but I made him, uh, I, I, I made him treats. Okay. Now and, then. and he was so, um, he was demure and respectful. Uh -huh. But he knew that I liked to bake early in my time with him. I had, I had baked a pie and brought it to the movie set for him. God knows what I was thinking, but I, I was early in my time with him and he was making the Purple Rain movie. And I figured, uh -huh. well, you know, what a young actor needs when he's making an autobiographical movie of his life is a pie. <laughs> what I was thinking, but I baked a pie and I brought it to him and he really liked it. So every now and then he'd ask me uh, to make him hot chocolate or chocolate pudding or uh, cake. He loved cake. Susanna baked cakes for him as well. So I can do that once in a while, but no, you know, he ever made me pancakes. No. Okay. Um, also he wanted to know, obviously Andy living in Minneapolis, what makes, what makes the music coming out of Minneapolis so special? I mean, I'm, 
Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are kind of in the news right now for putting out their first solo album, which I'm so glad about. They're just geniuses too. And what is it? Is it the long winters? What is it about Minneapolis specifically that breeds these hyper-creative people like this? Or I guess not clinically hyper-creative like Prince, but incredibly hyper-creative uh, people like Jam and Lewis and the time. Yeah, it might be the long winters. Um, I know that there was some discussion in the popular press about all the great pop music these days coming out of Sweden. And that does seem to be the case when the nights, uh, when the winter is six months long and uh, the, the days are very, very short, yeah. often artists get creative, you know, in the nighttime, in the dark. And um, it, it, it can foster creative output. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to say that Minneapolis and St. Paul has a higher proportion of creativity than other places in the United States, certainly Philadelphia and Chicago and Miami and, and Austin, Texas, and then there are places. But uh, the thing that makes Minnesota so great is, um, and this might be changing now as I understand it, but uh, so an A&R executive said to me once that the motto in Minnesota was, here comes the accent again, oh, I would never do that, but you go right ahead. Uh, personally conservative, politically liberal. And that political window is changing a little bit, but meaning I myself have a code of conduct that I follow, but I'm open-minded to you having a different code of conduct. That open-minded attitude is great for the arts. It's great. so great for the arts. And it, it certainly allowed the arts to thrive in Minnesota. Good. Uh, Andy also wanted to ask about uh, the recording of the Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Dorothy was a waitress on the promenade. She worked a night shift. Dishwater blonde, tall and fine. She got a lot of tips. Well, earlier I've been talking stuff. Violent room, fighting with lovers past. I needed someone with a quicker wit than mine. Dorothy was fast. Well, I ordered, yeah, let me get a fruit cocktail. I ain't too hungry. Dorothy laughed. She said, sound like a real man to me. that's the first song recorded at Paisley Park so I don't know if you were involved but there was something about the mixing board not being hooked up correctly do you know anything yeah I do know uh, and I know it quite well uh it was not the first song recorded at Paisley Park I I, I was at Paisley Park in 2017 and uh, the young lad who was taking members of the revolution and myself into the control room, uh, falsely stated that it was the first song recorded at Paisley Park. No, it wasn't. It was the first song recorded on the new custom-made Domitio console. Mm -hmm. Frank Domitio was a fellow from Cuba who built a recording console that Prince loved. So there's a, a hybrid API console at Sunset Sound in Studio 3. It was Prince's favorite thing in the world. So Prince commissioned Frank to build him 
a recording console and it was taking too long and Prince was, uh, he was so antsy because it was taking so long. So at one point we had the new Galpin Road home, Prince's new home. We had his, uh, his new studio, which was bigger and better than the Kiowa Trail studio. And we needed a console. There was a vacant space where the console would be. So Prince said, call Frank DiMidio, get him in that console on a plane, get them out here to Chanhassen. I don't care what state it's in. That dude is coming here to my house and he's going to finish that console here in my house and is not leaving until it's done. And this was January of 1986, right when the Challenger exploded. I remember watching it as Frank was Wiring it up. Anyway, uh, Frank comes out and uh, spends a few days and we get the console installed and Prince can't stand it anymore because he's just so eager to work. He puts Frank on a plane and sends him home. And the very first song we recorded was Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Prince had been asleep. He'd had this dream. He woke up, he wrote the lyrics and he said, I want to record now. Okay, okay, okay. You know, Frank just finished testing it. Frank's on a plane home. We're good, we're good, we're good. And we got into the room, just the two of us. And we start recording, and I recognize, geez, Louise, there's no high end in this console. And just yesterday, I saw this console be flat out to 70 kilohertz. Something's wrong. I, I, I got to get him to stop. But we're recording the drums, and what am I going to say? I mean, he's been so antsy, wanting to get in the studio, and he's so happy right now. What am I going to tell him? You have to stop? He seems happy. He heard it. He's got ears. Okay, well, all right. And he keeps adding instruments. And I'm thinking any moment now he's going to say, there's something wrong. Can you fix this? But he's not. And the whole thing is sounding like it's underwater. And uh -huh. he's, he's just happy. And, and we're working and it's, it's just dull. And, and he's happy. And it's instrument after instrument after instrument, not stopping, going, 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 going. I'm thinking, please, please, please let there be a break. And he won't take a break. And we put up the vocal mic and he does his vocal and he does his backing vocals. And we finally do a rough mix of it after hours in the studio, you know, overnight. And he said to me, I remember this because it was amusing. He said, I like this console. He's really happy. <laughs> I like this console. And then he said, but it's kind of dull. <laughs> out of the room, takes his cassette, and off he goes to bed. And I'm like, oh, thank God, at last. Grab my multimeter, go straight to the power supplies. And sure enough, consoles have bipolar power supplies. You have one power supply for the positive rail and another power supply for the negative rail. And one of the power supplies was knocked out. So we were swinging only half the current that uh -huh. we normally would swing in this console and high frequencies change very rapidly. So it was the high frequency information that just petered out. It just didn't yeah. have enough energy to, to swing current for those high frequencies. So it was rather uh -huh. dull. He didn't care. When we, when we went to mastering, I had to say to Bernie Grunman, uh, Bernie, there was a technical issue with this console. So whatever you can do, uh -huh. To add that missing high frequency information, please, please, please do it because thanks. But for him, for Prince, it was a happy accident. It was a yeah. song about a dream. It was about a dream, and 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 it, it has that dreamlike quality. Yes. That I love, that you, I love that you said that it sounded underwater because that's what exactly what I've always thought. But as you said, it serves the song. And mm -hmm. uh, you telling the story, and I'm thinking, boy, how lucky was it that. That's the song that he recorded on that thing. 
something else may not have worked, but it worked perfectly for Dorothy Parker, you know? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Two more Prince related so uh, questions for you. One is, uh, let me read this. So one of our other Patreon supporters, Ian G. Sharp wants to know what your views on how the recording techniques of the day were just as important in creating what was recorded, sparking creativity, and would techniques and technology now have further or hindered that? So I think that kind of refers back to the idea that, of that. I'm still just, I know he's moved, but I'm imagining that room full of gear, the two of you in there tinkering with whatever, him having a million ideas. Was the you talking about this board that he had made for him, were you ever hindered by the, did his, was he able to satisfy the songs and sounds he had in his head with what was available then? Or was there impediments, hindering, uh, hindrements anyway? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, his his style, I'm, I'm given to understand from engineers who worked with him later, his style changed only somewhat when Pro Tools and digital audio workstations came along. In fact, uh, to the very end of his life, he would still occasionally want to record analog. What analog did, the constraints of that, was that it limited the number of tracks you had. Prince was way too impatient and had zero interest in doing what Michael Jackson and others were doing, which is locking two multi-tracks together and having 48 tracks instead of 24. No way is Prince going to be interested in that. So when you know you've only got 24 tracks, what that does for an arranger and a producer, a record maker, is it forces you to give each musical part greater weight. So your snare sound is your one and only snare sound. You don't have eight tracks for snare. You've got one track. So get the snare sound you want. You've got one track for bass, and it could be amp, it could be direct, it could be some combination, but you've got one track, and you've got a stereo pair for backing vocals. So it forced the arranger to, rather than be thinking, the world is my oyster, if I need a part, all I, can, all I have to do is add a new track. No, 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 no. The instruments that are there must do all the work. And think of it like being a director of a play. And uh, imagine a director who's got, I've got 40 actors that I can put on this stage. Imagine having three. I have yeah. to tell this whole story with only three. So each actor would have to be more complex, more nuanced. Uh, and that's and that was Prince's genius. He was a genius at many things, but also at arranging. He could, with 24 tracks, we could have a hit song like Kiss and not even use all 24 tracks. That's how genius he was. Now, had he unlimited tracks to work with, uh, he, he would have applied his genius in a very different way. Maybe it would have been sound layering or sound design. I don't know. Um, but those constraints were the constraints that he mastered. Okay. Uh, the other I thing we that. had to master is, is, of course, the transfer function of tape is nonlinear. And that's where I, that's where I came in because I, 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 know, I knew the transfer function. I'm not talking mathematically. I'm talking uh, sonically. I know what it's going to sound like when it comes back off of tape. I know how hot we have to hit the tape in order to have tape compression and tape saturation and that kind of stuff. Mm. So engineers were artists in working with analog tape and producers were maestros at arranging if they limited themselves yeah. to 24 tracks. I love that. 
wow, I, that's a, I had no idea that it's such a great answer would come from that question. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. I want to ask you, let's, I, we could do hours on prints, but I want to get to the other things that you've worked on. And one of the other things, as I've, as we've established the list I'm working off of might be incomplete, but it looks to me that one of the first things you do outside of the prints world is, is working on Michael Penn's March album with, uh, uh, no myth. That was a huge song and a huge, I loved that song. Loved it. Mm -hmm. What about you? Did Michael Penn say, I need the lady that works with Prince to come work on my album? They're so different. Yeah. Uh, I had a manager at the time. I left Prince and went back to, to Los Angeles and I had a manager. And the manager was friends with the great producer, Tony Berg. Tony Berg has mentored more great LA artists, engineers, and producers than anyone I know. But Tony was just starting his production career, career then. And uh, Tony and Michael Penn were, were dear friends. So this is one of Tony's very first productions, Michael Penn for RCA. For the listeners who don't know, Michael is uh, Sean Penn's older brother. And Sean got the acting talent and Michael got the musical talent. When we worked together, it was 1989 and it was Tony who brought me on board. It ended up being a really, really smart move for so many reasons. I learned that when you're hiring people to collaborate with you on an album, when you, an artist, are hiring people to collaborate on an album, you'd be doing yourself a great service if you hire people who hear music differently than you do. You don't want to hire people who hear music the exact same way that you do because you hear it like that. Uh, what I brought to the party for alternative and indie music was I brought the soul because that's my favorite music. And I had worked so many years uh, with Prince and with that that good, tight rhythm section, myself loving soul music so much and being more interested in the rhythm than in the top line or, 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 or anything like that. And the harmony, I can bring, I bring the ear that's, that's listening to bass and drums. Yeah. You bring the ear that's listening to acoustic guitars and electric guitars. You bring the ear that's listening to lyrics. When we pool our talents, we've got a record that stands a shot of appealing to more people. Yeah. So that, that's, that's why that worked. Wow. I love that album and that song, especially. Um, another one that surprised me was the uh, Ghost of a Dog album by Edie Brickell and New yeah. Bohemians. If a child lives with money, 
I got that CD for Christmas that year. I'll never forget it. I got that. I got Paul Simon's Rhythm of the Saints, and I got NXS's X album. And I played all of those to death. Oh. And I loved that album. And, and I just re-listened to it again, getting ready to talk to you. How, what was it like working with Edie? And how, how did that, again, I'm guessing you're just being brought in maybe by Tony or maybe your work yep. with Michael? Okay. Yeah, Tony and I worked as a team on several albums uh-huh. uh, before I, uh, I I kind of branched off because I got asked to do more and more projects as an engineer. So Tony ended up with the with the outstanding Sean Everett. Sean Everett is just now a producer in his own right with Alabama Shakes and so many others. Sure. But anyway, and Sean Everett, uh, I'm going to say a better engineer than I. So uh, Tony Tony traded a. <laughs> but I went off and I had a career as an engineer and from what I learned from Tony allowed me to eventually have a career as a producer as well, because Tony is just a damn, damn brilliant. Yeah. I learned so much from him. <clears throat> so with Edie, uh, that was an unusual, unusual project. Um, the producer of the new Bohemians first album had done something that's very, very common in the industry, especially with debut artists replaced the band and had session musicians play, I think other than the lead guitarist, on the first album, session musicians played uh, played the instruments. And this was very commonly done with with debut artists because often debut artists are stage ready, but they're not record ready. They lack the precision and the flexibility to be able to play competitively well on records. That's what happened with the first album. They interviewed Tony for the second album and Tony promised them, if you work with me, if we work together, you, you band will play on this record. We'll work to your strengths and we'll, we'll get there. And Tony kept his promise. Nice. But the difficulty with that is that there, there were tensions between uh, Edie and the rest of the band. Um, Edie had, uh, garnered most of the attention after that first record came out and you could imagine the band felt a little bit left out of that and the band some band members not all of them but some of them were still struggling to be record ready and they had to work really really hard so there were some tensions there Edie and I became um well we became sort of temporary friends I I love her very very much and we um she she was just falling in love with Paul Simon at that time, and I had my own uh, boyfriend that I was in love with, and so we would we would we'd sit on the roof of my house and drink beers and talk about men and talk about horses and I I I, I enjoyed her company very very much, and I'm grateful for the time we spent together. That's really kind of all I can tell you about that album. Okay. It was an album that was marked by by some tension, but often tension, if you put it into the art, it it leads to great art. Yeah. That makes so much sense. That album sounds a little looser, a little more band focused. Mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. a couple of little 
less than two minute ditties on there. And I've always thought that was a really interesting follow-up. And you saying this, it makes more sense. That's because the band was finally doing what they wanted to do, playing their own thing. And they didn't quite get a chance to do that the first time. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a real challenge for record producers to yeah. work with, with debut artists. Because what you have to do is you have to take these raw gestures and try to polish them into, uh, into a commercially viable album. And your competition is featuring people who've been playing for years in the studio or is featuring session musicians. It's a tough gig. You know, you think of it like sports a little bit. You're taking the field here with professional athletes and they've been doing this for a long time and they want to win. So it's hard to get up to speed. I could see that. Um, Okay. I could be wrong about this. Did you work on the song Don't Ask Me by Public Image Limited for their greatest hits album? (laughs) song but yeah tony and i worked on a song for public image on on a, on, on uh, uh there was a one song we did with public image yeah uh, and i don't remember the name of it. it it appeared i believe on a compilation album yeah that it's called don't ask me and it was the new song as they often do put a new song on a greatest hits package and release that as all a right single. i remember that that's now. the one yeah. so did you interact <laughs> every time we have someone on here who has had any interaction with john lyden or johnny rotten um, has quite a story to tell. Do you have a story to tell oh. about John Rotten, John Lydon? He's, a, he's another one. John Lydon is another one who's who who I idolized and who's who I, whose albums I had. I used to play that first Public Image Limited album. I played that that record to death. I wore the grooves off that record, and of really? course, I had Never Mind the Bollocks and. Uh-huh. So when John came out to the studio, it turned out that he and Tony were not a perfect match. Tony being as smart uh, as he is, uh, Tony tried his best with John, but John um, John is this odd combination of high intelligence and punk sensibility. You get a bit of that with Paul Westerberg as well. And those two things, that's a fiery combination. I've never produced anyone with that combination, but uh, I, having wa- having worked with Paul Westerberg and wa- watched Matt Wallace do it, it's really tough. It's yep. really tough. You have to be you, 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 to, to produce Lou Reed. You've got to yes. be as sharp as a knife, All and you have to have right. yeah. You have to be as sharp as a knife, and you have to be able to look at the world through their frame of reference. And if you can't do that. No amount of intellect or desire will get you there. So it was kind of like that between Tony and John Lydon. And you could feel it in the room. 
each other was disappointed in themselves that they couldn't meet the other halfway. Mm. Both, both honored and respected each other and tried, mm. but recognized we, there's no middle ground for, in which we can meet. Yeah. That said, uh, I knew that uh, John loved reggae and uh, he wanted to go. <laughs> he wanted to go out dancing in Santa Monica to a reggae club, and I said, "Yeah, let's go." And I don't think I think he didn't drive, but anyway, we were in my car. I drove, uh-huh. so he and I went out. We went out and uh, we drove to this club in Santa Monica so we could go dancing, dance to reggae. And I remember, God, this was sad. We were out in front of the club, just getting ready to go in, and I remember someone in front of the club picked a fight with him. Oh, just, just really? Just to pick a fight with him. And, and, and he, he handled it like a gentleman. He, he handled it so well. But I could just pick up on him the weariness. Yes. The weariness of, of having people do this crap yeah. to you. And he didn't even mention it. You know, he, he dealt with it, it, dismissed it. We went into the club. And, and I, could just, I could just feel it. You know, just the, the sadness of people think, thinking that you're a tough guy. And they say, oh, I'm going to try uh-huh. my luck with a yep. tough guy. Well, the poor dude. But we danced and we had a really nice time. It was really Amazing. fun. Amazing, Susan. Everything you've seen and done, you tell these stories and I'm just blown away. Um, so what then, I mean, did you, how close did you get to Paul Westerberg? Because he, like you said, he's a prickly one too. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, the record I did with Paul, uh, I was the engineer. Matt Wallace was the producer. The replacements had just broken up and Paul had just gotten sober. So this was the first record Paul was going to do uh, not high. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Paul's another one who um, anyone who reads a lot is going to love Paul Westerberg from the downbeat because he, he's a reader and he's brilliant and he's funny and he's witty and he's a star. And again, we, 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 we connected, we found a common ground, good man. Our common ground was, we, it was literature. We could, we could talk about that. And another common ground is we both love Minnesota. He loved living in Minnesota. And um, I believe I have a letter from him somewhere in my box of memories, but we did exchange one letter and I got a couple from Edie as well. But uh, we mentioned um, after the record was done, uh, maybe going to the state fair together and looking at the pigs because we both love that. I love that. Love the Minnesota State Fair. Love those pigs. So, yeah, a lovely guy, but uh-huh. the, the kind of guy, you know, 
you, you could talk for hours too at a party, but I was not the right engineer for him. Uh, and, and I tried so hard. The reason I wasn't right is because when we were working, tracking that record, I was told by Matt Wallace, you must always have tape up and ready to roll because Paul is going to get suddenly inspired and he's going to pick up an instrument and he's not going to tell you roll tape. He's just going to start playing and you better be in record. It was a little bit, it was a little bit beyond my sensibility. I, I, I couldn't see the world through his frame of reference. I tried really hard, but I couldn't do it. Um, Matt Wallace was his guy. And Paul even said that. He said, that's why Matt's my guy. Matt just gets me. That's how you had to work with Paul. And I, as I understand it, you have to be that way with Lou Reed as well. You must always be ready to capture what he's doing. Now with Prince, Prince was a little bit more methodical. Come to the studio, we're going to have a session. And you know, he's just going to, that's how it's going to proceed. Yeah. But it was a little bit more amorphous with other kinds of musical thinkers. And I, I, I did less well with those types. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, now, you worked, from what I can tell, you worked with a band that I actually really love called Gegita. And Gegita was made up of two guys, one guy whose name I'm afraid I can't remember, and the other guy was Greg Kirsten. Who, has, who is now one of the hottest producers in the world and has been for a decade. I saw them open up for Toad the Wet Sprocket in around April of 94. Yep. And uh, they were wearing uh, like gas station outfits, you know, overalls kind of, yeah. and coveralls, one in red, one in blue. So weird. I bought their first album and I love it. And uh, it's so strange, but almost nobody knows about this band, except they had one hit song called um, Whoever, Whoever You, you Are. are. Yeah. Yes. All I want to do is to thank you, even though I don't know who you are. You let me change lanes while I was driving in my car. All I want to do is to thank you, even though I don't know who you are. You let me change lanes while I was driving in my car. So tell me about working with Gegi Ta. Gegi Ta changed my life. Geg is Greg Kirsten. Ta is Tommy Jordan. That's and uh, Tommy Jordan was the other hyper creative I was telling you about. Oh, sure. Um, yes. 
Yeah, Tommy uh, in the in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, Tommy organized a band called Koku, which was short for Collaborating Cultures. It's a ten-piece band, and the genius of Tommy was this ten-piece band consisted of five musicians, including Greg Kirsten. I mean, really highly trained musicians himself, and Greg and John McKnight and some others, Danny Moynihan, and five non-musicians, because Tommy's great experiment was. What would happen if you put these together? So it was a 10-piece band, and they had a residency in two of LA's biggest clubs in, in that, the early 90s, Flaming Colossus and Vertigo. Uh, Bono from U2 bought them three weeks of studio time. Steven Spielberg had them play his birthday party. I mean, they, 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 they got a lot of great attention for how, how extraordinary they were. But the band kind of exploded because the non-musicians with all this attention decided that they actually were musicians and were going to make a greater musical contribution. And so it just fell apart. When it fell apart, Tommy and Greg decided to form a duo and they were signed to David Burns, the Walkabop label. Where I first encountered them, I was, it was when uh, I was in Burbank at Warner Brothers Records, taking a meeting with an A&R person named Kevin Lafferty. And we had our meeting and then he said, I'm going to play you something. It's a really cool demo by these guys. He said, you won't be interested in working with them because there's no money. They don't have money to pay you, but they're on a small boutique label. But let me play it. And that moment in that office changed my life and changed my career. Um, I heard a demo called Ready for Rain. I heard two demos, but I heard these two guys know something about music that I don't know. And it's something I need to know. And it, uh, as soon as it was over, I said, oh, on the contrary, please, Kevin, please put me in touch with them. I'd, I'd like to meet them. Tommy called. We exchanged phone numbers. Tommy called. We were on the phone for a couple of hours. And then uh, he said, yeah, you know, let, let's meet. Let's work together. And he came over. He and Greg came over to the house. And we talked about the record. We got all excited. There was chemistry. And he said, well, let's go. You know, they'd already started recording their record with someone else and it didn't work out. Let's go in the studio right now. And I said, oh, guys, I'm so sorry, but I can't. I've got two records lined up back to back. I'm not going to be available for six months. I, I mean, I love this meeting, but you're going to have to do this first record with someone else. And they said, all right. And I went off and did my records. And when I came back, I talked to Tommy on the phone and I said, how'd your record turn out? And he said, he didn't. We waited for you. No way. Yeah. So uh, I joined them. We went to Tommy's house in Pomona, California. He lives there still. And um, we recorded that record, uh, the grand opening, on a 16-track Stevens tape machine. The console we used was smaller than the iMac I'm looking at right now. 16-input little Mackie console. We had four microphones. We had a couple of direct boxes. <laughs> And two of the most creative people I've ever worked with in my life. Um, <clears throat> the record did not do well with the public. It was too odd of a record, but it grand did. Grand opening. It, I love it. Yeah, grand opening. It. it did extraordinarily well with the critics and scholars, the other audience, who wrote about it as if... Um, Kind of, kind of like Weezer's debut album as well. Yeah. Guys, people, folks, this is a band you need to know. Yeah. So we got more money to do uh, the second album, which we also did at Tommy's house, this time on a 24-track Stevens tape machine and a bigger 32-input Mackie console. And uh, we managed to have a hit single and a hit yeah. video out of it. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I forgot Tommy's name, I'm afraid to say. Mm. And I've actually emailed him a couple of times to try and get him on the show. Cause I have oh. this fascination with 
Gagita, and I've never heard back. And uh, oh. so when you mentioned him earlier, it didn't, I didn't connect the dots. Oh, wow. I'm so glad yeah. to hear that because Greg's obviously gone on to fame and fortune. And I've always wondered whatever happened to the other guy. Well, Tommy, um, Tommy was and is one of the most pure artists, if not the most pure artist I've ever known, meaning that he has a brain that creates and creates and creates. But unlike me and unlike uh, other artists, he doesn't have a brain that builds things. He's, he's a visionary and he needs partners to help that vision become a reality. Uh, after the music business and after the band broke up in 2000, Greg went his separate way. Uh, Tommy decided that it didn't make him happy. Pursuing success in the music business just didn't make him happy. And so what he does now and what he's done since then is he uh, collaborates with other musical artists who love having him as a collaborator. Uh, he's done a little bit of work for film and television, a few theme songs here and there. But for the most part, he lives a life unencumbered with the burden of having to create for others. Greg and I both are comfortable being part of the machinery, but a lot of people are not comfortable being part of the machinery. And Tommy's one of those people. But I, I remember T-Bone Burnett saying about him back in the 90s of Tommy, he said, he's one of the five most creative people in the music business. Yeah, no shit he is. Uh, <laughs> one of the most brilliant minds I've, I've ever, ever encountered when it comes to just pure yeah. original thought. Interesting. I never would have guessed. Never would have guessed. I'm so glad to hear this. I've been fascinated mm -hmm. with those guys. I'm going to have to try again, see if Tommy will come. Oh, please allow me. Uh, Tommy, Tom, Tommy's my, my dearest friend. Oh. And uh, Tommy and I are in, we're, I mean, we're, we've been, we've been together Good. for a very long time. So let me write to Tommy and uh, let him know and I'll put you guys in touch. Oh, I would, that would mean so much to me. Thank <laughs> oh, you, you so it. much. I have never forgotten seeing them live and always thought what was going on with them. I, I would love that. Thank you, Susan. Oh, yeah, you got it. I mean, they're just, they're, their live shows were unbelievable. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. They were. Right. I'd never uh, seen uh, anything uh, like it. Yeah, on that song, Sacred Cow. This isn't a song, really. Shut up and stop your playing around. The subject right now is what's wrong. What's wrong? You're always crying lately. What song? This isn't a song, really. Shut up. Stop your playing around. The subject right now is what's wrong. What's wrong with this immaculate? What song is this immaculate song? What's wrong with this immaculate? What song is this sacred cow? 
Greg playing guitar chords with his left hand and playing keyboards with his right hand and during the solo, oh man. I mean, and, and Tommy, just this fountain of creativity that uh, just didn't stop. Those live shows were great. And Toad, you mentioned Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yeah. I, I was a huge Toad fan. I saw that you, on your bio, you did something with them, but I couldn't find what it was. What did you do with Toad? Yeah, I did uh, I did some mixing, some live live mixing for them. I mean, mixing for a live record. And they gave me, uh, they gave me a gold album for something I did with them. I'm sorry, I don't remember it. It's all packed up, all my gold records that, that boxed away. But yeah, they were friends of ours, of, of yeah. Geggy Paws. And we would, we, they were in Santa Barbara, not far from us. And so we'd attend some of the same parties and go on tour together. And right. I, I would help out when I could. They had Gavin McKillop producing them. They had their own team. But uh, I, I worked with them on certain pickup dates okay. here and there. That's great. Uh, I love Tommy those guys, too. And, yeah, me too. Tommy and Glenn are still, are still in touch. Oh, I'm glad. I keep meaning to get Glenn on here, too, actually. Oh, he's um, wonderful. Okay, uh, there's still more, but one I think we'll we can probably end on this. One of the one of the maybe the biggest single I believe that you've probably been affiliated with that wasn't tied to Prince is Bare Naked Ladies in one week. song was huge i heard an interview with ed robertson recently where he was talking about he wrote that song in like 20 minutes it just sort of came to him tell me about working with bare naked ladies oh oh man boy does that put a smile on my face those memories oh what great guys what great great guys they had approached me they approached me and they asked, uh, we were on tour, Gagita was, 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 was with them on tour, and they, they asked uh, me to work with them, and uh, I, uh, they, they had a window of time in January and February, and all I had in that, in that window was three weeks. You can't make a full-length album in three weeks. And uh, they were disappointed because they knew from Gagita what I was like to work with, and they also knew from Toad because a lot of us, we were all friends together, and they, they wanted to... Um, to, to work together. And I said, well, I've only got three weeks. And they said, well, we're pretty fast. We've got these songs written. How about if we get started with you in the studio and then we could hand it over to another producer who could finish the last of the overdubs and mix it. I wanted it. So I said, yeah, deal. So um, we did have to work pretty fast. They gave me demos and I'm just I was I was so booked. This was 97, the beginning of 90s. No, beginning of 98. 98 was my busiest year. But um, just before, or no, just after I flew up 
to uh, do pre-production with them up there in Scarsborough. I arrived at their warehouse and Ed said, did we send you a demo of the latest one? It's called One Week. And I said, no, you didn't send it to me in time. And uh, Ed sat down with the acoustic guitar and played it. And I, I remember we, we tried it out in rehearsal at some different tempos, if I'm remembering correctly. We tried it a little slower, tried it a little faster, just kind of brainstormed. What's the best way to treat this? Mm-hmm. And uh, we were off to the races. We went down to Austin, Texas, to Arlen Studios and get everybody away from home and we we worked for for three weeks there the um i mean it was it was incredible these guys are smart and hard working and talented and great players but we were a bit stressed that uh kevin was ailing and uh he was losing weight um now bare naked ladies told me that on every album they do a song naked and uh okay and then they have a contest where the fans try to guess the naked song. So we were we were recording a song called Contrary, mm. and uh, all of a sudden Tyler remembered. He said, "Hey guys, we haven't done we haven't done the naked song." And as soon as the word naked came out, all just the clothes just came off. So we recorded the song with them naked, naked. And I remember uh, Stephen saying to Kevin, "Man, you are one skinny dude." <laughs> Yeah, and uh, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I don't think he used the, used the word dude, but essentially he said, you're really, really thin. Yeah. And we were worried. And we'd go out to dinner and, and Kevin was having difficulties eating and his, his doctors hadn't found, couldn't pinpoint what was wrong with him. It was after that album that uh, Kevin was diagnosed with leukemia. So the tour was really rough. Greg Kirsten substituted for Kevin on that tour uh, because Kevin was undergoing treatment. But it was it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And then the ball was passed over to David Leonard, who finished up the overdubs, did the mixing. And it was in July that I got a call from my manager. I was in Sydney, Australia at the time working on another record. My manager called and he says, you've got the number one record in the country. The single went number one. And yeah. that was, that's pretty wonderful to hear. It is. It is. That's great. And Kevin, Kevin turned out all right. You know, he, 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 he did. did get treated and he's alive and well today. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. I just remembered the, <laughs> the, maybe the main question I wanted to ask you about Prince and we didn't cover it before. Mm. And there may not be an, uh, an uh, interesting answer here. I don't know. Something in getting ready to talk to you that I was in thinking about Prince and everything, I was thinking something I've noticed is that so many black artists, the great black artists, whether it's Marvin or Isaac Hayes or Al Green or Curtis Mayfield or whatever, they always merged politics. They were the voice of what was happening in black communities at their time. And they, we, we cherish and treasure their voices depicting rap music does this, you know, depicting what's happening. Mm -hmm. Prince almost never got political other than sign of the times, the song, there was sexual politics, but there, he was never really speaking about the state of the world other than it being kind of party time or let's party through the end of the world or whatever. Did you ever have conversations with him or did he ever express to you about politics about whether he was comfortable reflecting the black experience or anything like that. 
I only know a little bit. When he and I were together, it's because we were working, and he was so taciturn. He wasn't. He wasn't uh, given over to conversation. And if he was going to have conversation, he'd want to have it with his friends or his band members. Okay. Not that he and I, you know, didn't. I mean, he respected me, but it's not. That wasn't my role. But he would. He'd talk about it a little bit. Prince did not want to be a spokesperson for any one group of people. And I think in a, in a certain way, he's similar to what I've read uh, David Sedaris talk about when David Sedaris refuses to try to be a spokesperson for, for homosexual rights. He, David is, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an essayist. Yeah. I'm a writer. Don't, don't put that on me. Don't make that my job uh, to speak for all homosexuals. Let me just speak yeah. for myself. And by the way, that is the word that David prefers to use because he's older. He's, he says homosexual rather than gay. Uh, I'm reading his latest book right now. Oh, nice. With Prince, it was kind of the same thing. Don't make me the spokesperson for everyone. I don't, I don't want that role. I don't want that role. I'd rather speak for all people than black people. Now, uh, Prince admired Jesse Johnson. Jesse Johnson from the band The Time. Jesse left The Time, and Jesse had a song about uh, being black in America. And Prince admired Jesse for writing about that. Uh, um, he, I heard him say so. Mm. At that time, though, Prince wasn't willing to be that guy yeah. on behalf of everyone else. He, he just didn't have that interest. Huh. Yeah, it, yeah, I'd never even thought about it until when we were going to do this. And I thought, boy, what do I want to know about Prince? And it occurred to me that that's a hallmark of most of the great Black singers. Even Michael Jackson with Man in the Mirror and a couple other things spoke to the politics of the time. And Prince never dipped his foot in that pool really. And I wondered if he ever expressed why, or if you knew, but anyway, just curious. Well, I think sign of the times, the song sign of the times is a really good all. example of, of Prince uh, addressing world affairs and pop life is addressing True. what he sees as uh, um, uh, failings among some people and Prince could be a scold. He could be a finger wagging school marm. And there were some great lyrics on pop life, you know, You know, is, is something getting you down? Uh, is the mailman getting you down? Did he put your million-dollar check in someone else's box? That's right. And and singing things like, oh, "What's that underneath your 
knows is that where all your money goes uh, you know the, just trying to trying to scold people for uh for self-pity which he yeah. hated and trying to scold people about you know the, the, the look around you and also uh the song america mm-hmm. Jimmy never so. learned in school mm-hmm. um yeah. and he's trying to urge kids to stay in school so he, yeah. he can express his opinion sometimes remember ronnie talked to russia Mm-hmm. From the good controversy, point, good album. Point. Yep. talked to Russia before it's too late. Yeah, good yeah. point. So yeah, there was a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I could do this for hours, Susan. It was, it was so wonderful talking with you. It was more than I even thought it would be. <laughs> I am so grateful for everything that you've <laughs> yeah. done in your life. And you chose to step away, and now you teach at Berkeley, and that's I'm assuming. You're happy with that. You're satisfied with your life where it is. You did what you wanted to do, and now you're doing the other thing. All right, there you go. Susan Rogers. Am I right? Seriously, how interesting was that conversation? Amazing. I just could not believe it. Every drop of information in that conversation was like gold to me. By the way, her her internet dropped right as we were kind of wrapping up there at the end. So if it felt like an abrupt ending, that's why. Because we were just getting into the post-career and, you know, thank yous and all that kind of stuff. But it got ruined. Anyway. Such a wonderful, incredible lady. And some good news. Since talking with her, she put me in contact with Tommy Jordan, who she mentioned, from Geki Ta. That's one of the most hyper-creative people she's ever known. Uh, Tommy and I were supposed to talk yesterday. He had to move it. But anyway, we're going to be chatting here soon. Uh, Patreon supporters already know this and have some, and can submit questions, all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in getting involved in this and any other interview we ever do... Join our Patreon. It's in the link is in the notes here. All right. I want to close it out. I mean, obviously, it would have been easy to just keep going with Prince, but I really like the follow up single that Michael Penn put out after No Myth, uh, This and That. And that's what's playing right here. I love this song. Now, next week's guest is the kind of American singer songwriter that I teased a couple weeks ago that we ended up having to bump at the last minute. So, next week's guest. 80s, mid to late 80s, early 90s, American singer-songwriter. Never got huge, but put out some of the most quality uh, rock, kind of, I don't know, pop rock, indie rock of that era. Great, and he's got new music out. So, great, great stuff. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything. Folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. Uh, Yan is taking a very, very interesting and cool trip this weekend that uh, you might see some pictures of if you follow us on the on the Facebook page. Either way, he and I are going to talk about it because it's very music related. So that will probably be out next week. All right, thanks everybody. We love you. <laughs>